0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: The Eastern Airlines Radio Show's Thursday broadcast of the REPA Radio Hour, brought to you by the Eastern Airlines Radio Show and the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. During this hour, we share stories and memories of the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern captain, New the Show. And we hope you'll enjoy these stories we bring to you every Thursday. We'll tell your friends to listen in. We hope you will join in the conversation during the broadcast. Now let's get the show in the air. Repeater 16, you're clear to start engines.
2: Hey, where? are
3: vacation package. When
0: you need the sun, only one.
3: Eastern Super 7 vacations to Florida, Mexico, the Bahamas, the Caribbean. One low price for airfare, hotel, and more. One week to do whatever you choose. Super 7 vacations. How little they cost, how much they offer. When you need
0: the sun, there's only one. When you need the sun,
4: there's only one. Don, you got it.
1: Turn Don on. Yeah, let me turn Don's microphone on. Don Gagnon, I'm sorry. i Open your microphone. Go ahead, Don.
4: Okay. And today, our stories range from the sounds you just heard, or better stated, from the mail wings to the Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, a.k.a. the Whisperliner. As we like to tell our first-time listeners, you can listen in, with your smartphone or go to our radio show provider at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Cap Eddie at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time and click on the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you will be given a message that the show has not begun. Many just call in the show at 213 816. This will put you on a producer's board, and you have all you have to do to share your comments or join in the discussion is to touch the number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That will tell the producer to open up your microphone and then join in the fun. Now you can choose to listen or talk to one of the hosts. Now let's go across town and see what uh, Chuck... All right, Scott, for us. Chuck,
3: you there? Oh, yeah, Don. In our last episode, 15, we shared repartee story about Captain Tom Early's story of Sea of Beards, an exciting st- story about a landing gear on an L-1011 that would not tra- retract on takeoff out of San Juan, Puerto Rico. And then we read the great poem, Flying the Line by an unknown airline pilot who summed it up for many of the Eastern pilots. The poem, Got Up and Went, described a humorous way of retirement. Then followed a great open-mic discussion of retirement. Here the stories written by the men and women of Eastern Airlines with us each week. These are stories written by pilots who flew the planes of Picard, Picard Air, Aviation, Eastern Air Transport and Eastern Airlines. Stories printed in the Repartee and other publications. Captain Mike, how about starting our program today?
5: Sure, Chuck. Thanks. Chuck, today uh, we share the Hangar Talk article done so well by Captain Fred Davis. It appeared in the 1978 issue of Repartee. Mr. Producer, can you tell us another great story featured in the category of Nostalgia Corner?
1: Another article appearing in the 1978 issue of Repartee under Nostalgia Corner was written by Captain Fred Davis. Here's what he writes Here are some observations, some of which you might want to use in the future issues of Repartee. In the July issue under Nostalgia Corner, Part 2, were several instances of misprinted material which brought to mind one that I know of. During one of the periods when we had pilots on the West Coast taking schooling on the new equipment, I believe it was on the Electra L-188, arrangements were made for housing accommodations. The arrangements were made at the Vine Manor, and we received a telegraph stating that the reservations were there uh, in Hollywood. Speaking of the cold weather this past winter, I'm reminded of one of the mid-30s at a time when the airports did not have the snow-moving equipment they now have. At Newark, instead of trying to remove the snow, it was rolled down and allowed to freeze. Then we flew off the top of the resultant. I came into Newark one night after a day of fairly warm temperatures. There was a good frozen crust on the field when I had departed earlier in the day but it had softened up considerably in the meantime. All went well until we had rolled far enough for the weight to to be supported mainly by the landing gear, at which time the wheels broke through the crust and the Electra came to a very abrupt stop. All of it, that is, except the tail, which kept on going. We were looking right down over the nose at the snow. Fortunately, we did not go all the way up on the nose, but settled gently back down on the snow with no damage to anything. During this time, winter, this same winter rather, I remember at least one day before the surface was frozen sufficient for taking off when the only clear space was between Eastern's building and the National Guard. There was a very brisk northwest wind that several planes were backed up as far as they could be, and takeoff was made between the Eastern Building and the National Guard Building. Some will remember when we flew the DC-3, a round trip and a half between Newark and Washington, and the Newark-based crews overnighted at Washington in the Burlington Hotel, where Eastern had a suite of rooms for the crews, and we had to compete with the cockroaches for accommodations. One time, George Pomeroy, flying the Stinson Trimotor, took off from either Savannah or Charleston going north, and upon arrival at the next station was surprised to find he had one less passenger than he had started out with. Along the way, one man had opened the door and jumped out. As I recall, they never did find his body. One night, Champ Taliaferro and Vern Peterson, as co-pilot, took off from Atlanta in a DC-3, headed north, and shortly thereafter encountered a thunderstorm, which turned out to be somewhat more severe than Champ apparently thought it might be. They were unable to control the rate of ascent, which resulted, and when they had reached a considerable altitude, Burns said to Champ, you'd better do something about this as I passed out around 1,900 feet. Well, the thunderstorm finally spewed them out on top in beautiful weather at about 1,900 feet. R.K. Smith and the Stinson Trimotor lost the tip of the number three prop. It went completely through the fuselage, severing the intake manifold of the number one engine. I do not recall where he landed, but do recall that feathers were used for some degree of soundproofing in the sidewalls, and when the prop tip went through, it resulted in a godly, goodly supply of feathers floating around in the passenger compartment. Bob Chu landed the kingbird after having gone through a hailstorm with the upper surface of the wing looking like a Hawaiian grass skirt. It's a wonder that he got it down, but then it probably flew sort of normal for the kingbird had a gliding angle about like a brick. Your story of Duckworth and his story about finding a suitable landing place with both engines out brought to mind Johnny Gillis experience. Only Johnny, it was real and not a dream. Between Washington and Richmond and the DC-3 when we went to switch gas tanks The selector valve shaft broke with the valve in an empty tank position after both engines quit. He feathered both props and was able to glide into the Richmond airport, remembering to unfeather one prop just prior to landing so he would have hydraulic pressure to ensure getting the gear locked down. Your story of the DC-3 cargo door and the stewardess reminds me of the time a pilot, I believe, was Eddie Barber, hung his new uniform coat behind the seat on a condor, and later on, when the cockpit became somewhat warm, opened the window to cool off, and there went his new uniform coat right out the window. This same deal was reminded me of the time after Eastern had installed The the passenger loading door with the built-in steps. When Rusty Heard was approaching Tampa, and the door became unlatched, the flight attendant, in attempting to grab it and keep it from opening, was sucked out as the door opened. Fortunately, he held on and was able to hook one leg over the chain that served as a railing. When the door was open, there he remained as Rusty went in and landed his head just clearing the ground as the DC-3 rolled to a stop. I think this is enough for now, as I did not fly the line much after 1937. I am not as familiar as the rest of you as to what went on during flight or in the hotel rooms. Thereafter, incidents such as the above are all I can contribute. Have many more should you want them. Also, I will not be offended if you do not use any of this. Jim Holder, before you go on, uh, great uh, nostalgia corner that uh, we had in the magazine, and just want to make a a comment about the passenger that jumped out of the airplane. The passenger was found uh, not too far from Charleston, and John Engel, my late partner, who passed away at 97 years old, and uh, as you know, he was an affiliate member of REPA, uh, wrote the story about a passenger leaping from the airplane, an Eastern airplane. And uh, he was, his body was found, and they identified uh, some jewelry that he had on. And uh, we've done this story before. Now, Jim Holder, you've got the air. Well, thank
6: you there, Mr Neil. The category nostalgia corner was the idea of Reaper editor Captain Rollo Owens. He thought it would be a good idea to provide space in a Repartee magazine for those pilots wanting to write about random memories having no real main topic. Just sitting around with a bunch of pilots in an aviation environment such as pilot lounge or aircraft hangar. In the latter later scenario, we would refer to this as well, nostalgia counter seems to do it, corner seems to do it well in the print medium. Now let's hear what Captain Howard Wink had to say in the article that our producer has for us next.
1: In the nineteen seventy eight issue of Repartee, Captain Howard Wint uh, wrote this in the Nostalgia Corner. He writes, I along with everyone else look forward to repartee. One came this week. The previous issue told about Dave his song's death. I liked Dave very much. He was a good guy to fly with and a good man to work with from the dispatcher point of view. Maybe it wasn't well known, but Dave was an excellent watch clock repairman. It was during World War II time that I introduced him to Brad Timms, who owned Timms Jewelry Store there in the heart of Atlanta's business district. It was a family business and had been there a long time. I suppose it still is. However, Mr. Tims sold the store, but it keeps the same name. Mr. Tims is dead now also. Help was scarce, and Mr. Tims gave Dave all the work he could handle. Understand, Dave did the work at his home. Anyway, Mr. Tims liked Dave so much and was impressed with his honesty that he offered him the job of taking the store and running it. He would pay Dave the same money he made flying. Mr. Timms told him that he had a lot of fishing to catch up with. But Dave didn't take the offer, though, and I'm sure he preferred flying. I have noted Charlie Myers being mentioned. Charlie was the Billy Martin of the airline. He backed away from nothing. had a short fuse, but would cool off just as quickly. Charlie gave me and the other new gear pumper uppers, as I call them, time here at Miami in a mail wing. He was a good and tolerant instructor. I also remember one Christmas being stuck in Atlanta. Charlie was based there. He came to the field and took me to his home there on Virginia Avenue, and I had Christmas dinner with his family. I was at the Opelika Airport for the 50-year celebration and heard the announcement about Furman Stone dying. I remember it was 49 years ago that I was sent to Macon to relieve Sterling Smith for his vacation. Furman was flying the Jacksonville-Atlanta mail run and this night canceled at Macon due to Atlanta weather. In such cases, we would load the mail sacks in the car and take it to Atlanta where it would be worked at the airmail field office and dispatch north on the Atlanta to New York mail trip. Furman was a newlywed then and had an apartment there in Hayville in the Avon Apartments. Mrs. Stone had fixed up a nice late dinner for him, and I was invited. We had fried chicken I had fried chicken, plus many other things, including prunes, which I like very much. However, these prunes had been pitted and cream cheese inserted. I vividly remember chomping down on a prune and having the cheese come out. I do not like cheese in any form and was certainly in a predicament. I don't remember now or how... How I disposed of it. I always remember Mrs. Stone as a sweet, attractive lady. I also remember the anteater-type landings Furman sometimes made. Talking about landings, Slim Thomas always made wheel landings and always with excess speed. I remember coming back from Patterson Field with him in one of those three Boeing 247D planes we had in the instrument school. Had to go around. Bob Chu would use any kind of flap setting he wanted. A flap setting that should be no, no flap, or one quarter flap, one half, or full flaps. Wheel or three-point didn't make any difference to him. All those fellows were swell to fly with. I remember one time here in Miami Slim, R.K. Smith and I took our guns out to a gun range. Slim had a brand-new Sears Bolt Action 22. During the shooting, a small piece of the ejector came loose and fell in the sand. We all got down on our knees searching in the sand for the small piece, Slim getting madder all the time. He said, every time you try to get something for nothing, you get blank, blank, blank. We did find the part, however, and Slim took the gun back to Sears, and they gave him another one. One time on old trip number six out of Miami to Newark, we had these two girls on board from Philadelphia. They had been down in South America and were reading the book, Latins Are Lousy Lovers. Said they were really, they really were, they said. Anyway, they had a bottle and were hitting it pretty good. Slim took the bottle from them saying he would put them off if they got drunk. Slim hid the bottle in the back of the cabin. From then on, they called him their Father Confessor. When he landed at Charleston and started back through the cabin, one grabbed Slim's sleeve and told him to bring her a Coca-Cola. This burned old Slim up. I believe it was Henry Holden's retirement party there at Lakeside that Henry made his talk that had everyone laughing. Henry amazed me with his talent. I remember once of a, dispatcher, a dispatcher's annual route check to Brownsville on a Martin. We changed crews at Houston, and Henry was the new captain. Everyone in Corpus Christi, Henry began wondering whether he had the coffee pot off before leaving the apartment back home, thinking that it could set the house on fire. Anyway, on landing at Corpus, Henry called the, his landlady and had her check. When he left Corpus for Brownsville, Henry said, it That's the first time I ever paid a dollar and a half for a cup of coffee, and I didn't even get to drink it. Well, fellows, it has been a great life, and I have had a barrel of fun. I treasure my friends and memories.
2: Yeah, as
5: a side note for uh, Captain Howard Wendt, uh he wrote a book on his memoirs and whatnot that was pre- uh, done around 1960. It's a 68 page uh, soft cover book. Mm-hmm. It was called Plowing the Back 40. You guys have probably heard about I it. I remember that. Yeah. And it's yeah. Uh, the name of it was uh, Plowing the Back 40, and in the bottom of it it says Years, that is. But anyway, that's a very interesting book that he did write. But anyway, and, uh, as we continue on, over the past 15 broadcasts, we've heard a lot of poems written by pilots. Today's poem was sent in by the late Captain Leo Clooney, and it expresses the feeling of the early aviation pioneers that flew the airmail. No one living today can say that they've experienced being an open cockpit airmail pilot. Mr. Producer, do you have a poem Poem that I flew the airmail? Yes, and this was dedicated to Dick Merrill. Here we go.
1: Another Nostalgia Corner article uh, written uh, by the editor of *Repartee* at the time is the following tribute to Dick Merrill. The following preface and poem by Captain Leo C. Clooney, who passed away this past December, was received from Captain Dick Merrill. We have no knowledge of the circumstances involved with the writing or distribution of this beautiful poem. We copy, we, the copy we have, which is a Xerox copy, has a handwritten dedication to Dick Merrill. We do know that when we read this poem, a facet of Leo Clooney that was heretofore not known to this editor is revealed. We feel that everyone should share it with us. The fabric-covered biplanes of the early barnstorming and airmail pilots have long since vanished from the air, and the scream of wind through flying wires is a sound forgotten. Gone, too, are so many of those early pioneer pilots. So many of them have long been dust. Our great aviation industry owes these pioneer pilots, both living and dead, an everlasting debt of gratitude. Those early pioneer days are long since gone. We all flew deep into the night, unfortunately. So many of our old flying buddies has also already reached the dawn of forever. The poem reads, I have flown higher than eagles dare fly. I have fought many storms in the night's black sky. I have watched the beauty of sunsets glow long after it was dark below. I have watched the dawn light the eastern sky from my lofty seat up there on high. And soon it will drive night's darkness from earth and give the world a new day, a new birth. As I near the end of the runway of life and leave behind all its joy and strife, with a worn engine that soon might fail, I am proud of the fact that I flew the mail.
0: Great poem.
6: Beautiful, beautiful.
4: Yeah. You
6: recall those
1: stories, Jim Holder? Very nice. Pardon I got I got all the microphones open now So we usually this time At the end of the program we talk About whatever anyone wants to talk About whether it's what We just heard as far as uh, Memories of pilots going All the way back to Pitcairn And uh, Eastern Air Transport And um, as you Heard with uh, Fred Davis And and uh, Howard Ween. So um, Uh, Anyone want to Be first Well I
6: got a quickie And I don't think I've told this story before But you talked about Henry Holden H-O-L-D-E-N When uh, my class started on October the 7th 1963 And we were all up On the second floor of that white building The training building And uh, this old fella Sticks his head in the door interrupts everything and, and says, where is this James B. Holden? And uh, everybody looked around and I said, well, I'm James B. Holder. And he said, oh, I thought I was going to have a Holden. Turned around and walked off. I thought to myself, that's <laughs> weird. <laughs> he just comes in, where is this James B. Holden? And when he found out, my name was different. He didn't give a damn about me after that.
0: I never fooled him. <laughs>
1: He was a whole, Yeah, whole he, whole was, man. he was based in in Atlanta, I believe for most yeah. of his career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I remember seeing him in operations and all. He was still flying back during the days of, of uh Smokey, you remember I mean uh, uh Frosty Jones and what was his name? Uh Oh, besides Mark Britt. uh started with a... Well, it, people called him Smokey. What was his name? Smokey. Uh, I, yeah, I I'm having any. one of well, we had some good names for pilots. We had Slow Walking. Uh what was yeah. Slow Walking's name? Slow they Slow Walking been. Stewart or something like yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh we had some good names for these guys. I don't know where they came from, but uh Anybody anyway
2: I'm sorry, it's Bob. Uh, did anybody Go ahead. ever in New Go York? Ahead. Fly? Did anybody in New York uh, ever fly with a fellow named, nicknamed Sleepy Bob O'Gorman?
0: I flew with yeah. him. Not a good name. From Sleepy California. Bob. <laughs> yeah.
2: Sleepy
0: He's Bob the guy O'Gorman.
5: that could. Could take a cigarette yeah. out of his pocket, out of the pack, w- w- without removing the pack out of his pocket, so nobody would grub one <laughs> off of him. <laughs> oh, that's boy, what I. That's I, what I re- re- that, this is what I remember my dad talking, uh, uh, telling me about him.
0: <laughs> well, well, Bob
6: was uh, a little on the short side, and I remember yes, he was. His and everything, and I could look at the top of his hat, and it had a an embroidered X on it, a cross or something up there. And I immediately, as soon as I saw that, I took mine off and looked at it. And I didn't have one, but, you know, he was a colonial, <laughs> I don't know, but anyhow. But by, my favorite Bob Gorman story is, uh, and I may have told this before, is I ran into him in Atlanta. I flew him on the Electra up in
3: New York and
6: really enjoyed flying with him. And uh, we were ran across each other, and I had heard that he had gotten hijacked. And uh, and I saw him, and I said, hey, Bob, why did he go there? You made a little trip down to Cuba. And he said, let me tell you, I got hijacked by the strongest hijacker known on record. I said, what do you mean? I, you know, did this guy have muscles like a weight lifter or something? And he said, no, he held a pistol to my head and a barrel was eight inches across. <laughs> and he
0: held it with one hand. <laughs> <laughs> Hell, Bob.
6: He was well, you great, know, I, I
2: flew with him. I flew with him on this, Bob. I flew with him on, I believe, it was on the DC eight or the ten eleven. And um, apparently, he really did have some sort of a sleeping disorder because, you know, you could be taking off uh, first leg of the day and making a making a turn out, and he would he would drift off. you would have to take it. And uh, I think they discovered later that he actually did have some sort of a a sleeping disorder.
1: When you know when you when you mention guns, uh, Jim, you know, we all remember the story. And I don't know how I'm going to present it here. I'll try to use a discretion here. But you remember the story about Bill Malone and his gun? in his flight bag. <laughs> oh yes, yes. I
6: have a big yeah. I have a vivid remembrance because I was part of that group standing there listening to him at crew Schedule in Atlanta when uh that other captain,
1: what was the other captain's name? I the guy. Yeah but Yeah, yeah. oh what but was his he, name. He I was never showing, flew with him. He was showing mm-hmm. him uh, his gun and he said, You wanna see my gun? And uh, Bill had a peculiar way of talking. But uh, and it was done quite well by Ernie Waldrop. Bill Malone thought actually Ernie Waldrop did a better job of him than he did himself. But he was describing his gun to the captain in the jump seat, and uh, the guy took the gun and he looked at the sight, the little sight thing in the very tip of the barrel. He said, you know what I would do if I were you? And Bill said, no, what would you do? He said, well, it'll make it shoot straighter. And and uh, he said, if you'll file off just a little bit of what you have here, file it off. He said, it'll really improve your your sighting. And he <laughs> says, yeah. He says, why is that? He says, well, he says, well, wait, we, oh, he said, if you file it off, it'll help you. And and Bill said, "Well, why is that?" And he said, "Well, when they stick it up, you know what? It won't. Be, <laughs> it won't hurt you as bad, or something like that."
6: <laughs> yeah. There's been different varieties of that story, but always Bill Malone was one of that big old forty-five six <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, big old long silver barrel. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Any of you guys carry guns in your flight bag, Jim, Bob, or whoever's?
6: I, I, I never, I never. We did, used, I we used to carry uh, uh,
5: in my in the, in the corporate field. Like I said, we were Part Ninety-One, and uh, when I flew for the uh, Kuwaitis and uh, and uh, for many years, and we we had in the cockpit of the Seven Two, we had a, a holster underneath each cockpit seat, and we had oh. the gun uh, hidden in the former mm. lavatory. And one in the aft laboratory <laughs> underneath the Velcro uh, panels, because we used to fly international and we carried a lot of cash around in the airplane for the boss to use and whatnot. So, uh, mm-hmm. so we we always we always had snub those uh, charter arms, thirty-eight snub nose specials in the uh, under the seats. <laughs> wow. We had to make sure yeah. that they came out during maintenance checks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I
7: gather they weren't authorized, right?
5: Well, of course, we were we were not an registered airplane, so uh, we were not really under the scrutiny of anybody to come on the airplane to ramp check us or anything. So uh, yeah. they did create a few problems over the years, but uh, not not uh, uh, not to interrupt any of the uh, security uh, people and all the rest that we got involved with. Uh, so it was. Yeah. Uh, interesting having all of those uh you know when they had the cockpit seats in, in the when they were outfitting the airplane they were uh, rebuilding the seats of course and uh, so make sure everything was working right and they, and they built these mm-hmm. boxes with a little spring clip that held the the door on, closed on the front and they just flip it open and it had the little holster riveted on the inside with the uh with mm-hmm. the ha- handle of the gun sticking out, so you could it, so you could readily uh, get it out of the box without hesitation. Fortunately, we didn't ever have to to use it. So, uh, but it brought it brought, it, it brought attention to a lot of people.
0: Do you guys yeah, remember the crash acts? Yes. I'm sorry, Bob. Go ahead.
2: Oh, I said, uh, I believe if I saw an airplane equipped with all those gun holsters, I might look for a job someplace else. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys remember the
1: the crash axe in the cockpit? Uh, I remember yeah. on the Convair 440. Uh, we had one, and I don't know when they took that crash axe out. Uh, help me. Anybody remember, uh, Chuck, maybe you in maintenance
3: remember uh, when the crash axe was removed? Let's see, I came there in uh, 73, and the axes were still in the, the cockpit because I think I told the story about the um, the um, federal agents came down. We came to taxi a plane from the Miami terminal over to the Miami maintenance, and, uh, of course, I, I was going to uh, be in the left seat. I was going to taxi the airplane, and the other two guys were – Going to monitor the instruments and stuff. So we were standing in the jetway, and here comes the three guys in the DEA uh, coats—you know, those little raincoats they wear—and the one guy says, "We'd like you to stay there for a few minutes. Uh, we have something to check in the airplane." So I said, "Okay." So we just actually we went back out and sat down in the seats. Out, out in the waiting area, and they were in there for probably, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes, and they come out, and the guy says, okay, you can you can go in now. And uh, I said, all right. So I normally went up and sat in the captain's seat and started checking things out and making sure we had the start procedures and all that stuff. And my um, where the second officer would be, he was checking out the, the, the panel and making sure the AP was running And everything. So my co-pilot, the guy that's in the co-pilot seat, um, he was learning to taxi airplanes. So he says, I'm going to go use the John for a minute. And I said, sure, go ahead. And we hadn't got any engine starts or anything. And he comes back and he says, Chuck, I think you better go see this. I, I said, okay, what's the problem? He says, uh, See that place right there where the fire axe is? I said, yeah. He says, come back. On an L-1011, they have five um, toilets in the back. It makes like a semicircle, so to speak, in the back of the airplane. And they had taken that axe and chopped through the walls of all five of those um, commodes there, so to speak, tore up the whole inside of the airplane in the back, and use that axe to chop along some part of the wall. And uh, I said, Oh man, I said, that's going to be a problem. So I went back and, and called. Uh, I had a radio, <laughs> one of the radios that we carry. And I called my uh, lead man and I told him the problem. He says, Wait there, don't do nothing. So about a half hour later, here comes the lead man, the, this, the uh, foreman. And then he, he, we had, a like, a director of maintenance. Uh, this was on the night shift. And they all went back there and looked at that and came back and they said, all right, we'll, we'll, we take pictures and all this stuff and everything else and turn it into the security people. I said, well, what do you want to do with the airplane? And he says, is the airplane up uh, Can you run the airplane over? I said, yeah, the that, the that, the commodes don't have anything to do with running the air. He says, just drive it over on the other side and park it in front of the hangar. Don't park it on the line. So I did. Boy, there must have been a thousand people over there. What, it, what they were looking for is, I found out later, is, is somebody phoned in a tip that there were drugs on the airplane because Eastern was in a big drug war back in those days. And... uh they, the DEA agents were were looking for drugs inside the walls, and that's what they used was that fire axe. But they right. took them not out the, later hmm. on. Um,
0: yeah, just, interesting story. Yeah, the,
6: I, but, I don't know if the maybe. FAA
3: got involved with the axes or not, but um, I know we were told any time we found one to report it to our supervisor, and they would have the um, – sheet metal guy come along because it was held in by rivets, the holster portion of it, and he would obviously well, you know, take them. The rivets out and uh, take them.
1: I'm going to yeah. stop you short here. We don't have much time, but uh, I I can't recall whether there was a fire axe in the A300 which I flew, and the uh, the, the 1011, I believe there's one there, but and the 757, I can't recall. I guess they all had fire axes then didn't they Jim or
3: anyone remember well, besides so. Chuck the 1011s did. did um, the 757s yeah. I think they had already decided to take them out of the airplanes before uh, you guys got them I could remember
1: axes. one in that yeah, yeah.
3: but um, you know now I understand man I could be standing corrected here so you pilots will have to tell me I understand that Pilots can get certified to carry a weapon in, a, in an airplane. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's correct.
0: Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah,
2: um, I, had a, I haven't I flown, had flown an airplane in a long time. <laughs> yeah, but I don't, yeah, they, I don't. They have to go out. They have to go. They have to go out somewhere and go through a day or two or three of training. And I don't know what it involves, but yeah, they can get certified to carry a weapon. And you know, there's okay. all kinds of stuff they got to do in order to to carry it and how you'd get you know bring it on the airplane and all that
3: yeah, yeah. I, uh, I i i ran into a friend of mine uh who was um he wasn't working for Eastern. he was working for one of the newer airlines here and he told me that story i said i don't think you're right he says oh I know I'm right I went to the school he says i got certified and he pulled out of his mm-hmm. wallet and it was he had a little card. Had his name on it and everything else and you know, yeah. showed that he was authorized to carry a gun on a on an air transport, it was called. Well it didn't say airplanes, it said air transport.
0: Well, I don't know if they
3: uh, I don't know if they've changed the wording.
0: But
6: yeah, uh, I
3: said well, actually carry a gun? Right? And he said, Yeah, I carry a gun. And I said that's a yeah. big responsibility. Obviously all of
2: us know. Go ahead. My wife I'm sorry, my, my wife is a flight attendant still flying. And uh, they have uh, they really harden the cockpit door. Nobody's gonna get through that and most most likely. But uh, the pilots are instructed to nev- never open that door, you know, with bad guys in the back. Whatever they do, the passengers and crew, it's just going to happen, but they're supposed to get the airplane on the ground.
3: Yeah. Well, I understand the doors are different today than was back in the older days. In the older days, yeah, the doors hard. were made out of fiberglass and, and uh, plywood with some uh, sheet metal over it. Now they've actually got some steel on both sides of the doors, I believe. So yeah, that whole it part, would be very part part difficult part. to... Uh, unless that you had a big bolt, caliber gun to shoot through the door, that whole
2: front, uh, that whole front bulkhead has got Kevlar and all kinds of really really tough material to prevent anybody from hacking through it or shooting through it, et cetera.
3: Yeah, that's what I heard. It's yeah. a very, uh, it's a very safety feature door now that they have. So, but it um, well, yeah, they, wanna... they, they have guns. I know. I remember that. I got But the fire two, uh, axes, that was funny. I always, I always reiterate that hey Chuck, story about Can you about hear me? I'm DAA trying to get since... through here. Hello.
1: Okay. Hello. Yeah.
3: Uh, we don't all right. have much
1: time, but I, I just want to say that before we sign off, we got a couple of other things that we need to talk about. But here's some good news, and I put it in the we can all stand some good news department. And I uh, just read it today on Yahoo. That Gary Larson is coming back. Anyone knew, know who Gary Larson is? Not no. me. Nope. He nope. is the he is the cartoonist writer of the Far Side. Oh.
0: oh. Yeah. Oh
1: wow. He's been out of public eye for twenty five years. He wrote. He did some great cartoon. And he only does panels. He did some great ones for aviation. And uh, he's coming back on a daily. He's not doing it daily like he used to. They had calendars. They had books and everything that had his his, uh, panel cartoons. And uh, so he's coming back. And I guess the digital age is just uh, giving him some inspiration that uh, he can come back and put these things out. And uh, I'm real excited about, once again, seeing his cartoons. They're really good.
5: He must have been on the for
1: a while came power. back. Yeah, he married that gal uh, that was a news commentator. I can't think of her name. A uh, beautiful woman that uh, was on ABC, CBS, or NBC. I don't know which one. But um, he, he's uh, the husband of her. But... Very, uh he was on for, golly, he did his cartoons for about 15 years. I think Jim Carrey now is uh, kind of a political uh, cartoonist, and I kind of enjoy his cartoon work. And uh, But at any rate, and also the other thing I wanted to talk about is, real quick, if you saw the article about United Airlines ta- saying that they are considering cutting back by 45 percent, of yes, all of their Yeah, personnel. that
2: was on the news. That the was that, on the news. Yeah, yeah.
1: 45 yeah. 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 yeah, percent.
2: 2,250 pilots. They don't want to furlough wow. as many pilots as the rest of the people because it costs so much to retrain them and get them current again. So they're going to probably not lay off as many pilots percentage-wise as they do flight attendants and other people. That's what I read. That's amazing. Yeah. Yep, yeah, that's right.
6: Well,
3: it's interesting to see how the planes come out uh, configured in a new seat configuration for, you know, separation of, of people. Because yeah. you're talking about a
2: lot of revenue.
7: Yeah.
2: Some of the airlines well, like Southwest are off- offering uh, leaves of absence uh, to their, well, you know, about flight attendants. And they could take a 6, 12, or 18-month leave. At forty percent pay and full benefits. So that's a that's a very really good deal in my opinion. Yeah. Very well, good, only thing
6: John. I in if I yeah, is I took my son Mike at the airport, uh, he's been home for two weeks and he's going to Stuttgart, Germany, but he's actually in Stuttgart now. But I took him out to the international tournament here in Atlanta and it looked deserted. Deserted. Right, there was one right car account. on the departure and parked. I parked behind it with my truck and I didn't want to go in, but I didn't see anybody at all. One car, you know, normally they're looking for parking places all over the place. And uh it was still sitting yeah. there empty when I left about five minutes later. And he said there was hardly anybody on the airplane going to stop the Amsterdam. Okay. It did the you Delta. go into
0: the terminal, Jim?
6: Did you
1: did Pardon? you go in the terminal?
6: No, did, I did you go not. into the terminal? No, I did not. Uh-uh. I just dropped him off and and drove off. we already said goodbye and all that kind of stuff, so I just dropped him off. You
3: know, you know the funny part about this—it's not funny actually—they they're laying off pilots in in the airline industry, but they can't keep enough pilots in the air force.
7: Yeah, it doesn't make sense, does it? Huh?
3: Well, they well, give them rank. they give them bonuses, they give them anything that to, to, that they'll sign up for six more years to fly. Uh, they're they're losing more fighter pilots than anything else.
1: When did you
6: well, see that be history yeah.
3: now? Because the, the, the yeah. airlines
6: ain't tired.
5: That's,
1: that's true. Right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. They used to come the, out of the military uh, milit- to get jobs.
5: Couldn't understand why a military would be, especially fighter pilots, wouldn't be, uh, would want, they wouldn't stay in. I mean, they're having all
3: that fun and getting paid for it too.
6: Yeah, yeah,
5: that,
3: that's true. Well, but, you, know, old old uh, pilot,
6: you know, and you, you got to realize that a
3: fighter pilot probably only flies maybe uh, three or four times a month. The rest of the time, yeah. he's flying a desk say? or doing school Jim, or whatever what was... else.
2: Jim.
1: Go ahead. You, you kind of cut him off there, Chuck.
6: Sorry. Well, yeah. Well, Michael's an Air Force pilot, and of course he's doesn't fly much himself anymore since he's a bird colonel. But he he says that, that, that they're not leaving. You know, of course he's, and he doesn't have fighter squadrons. He's got uh, you know special ops type aircraft, and that uh, they're not having anybody getting out. Are they cross training
1: so
0: uh, helicopter pilots
1: and fixed?
3: No, they're usually individual airplanes. Yeah,
1: yeah.
3: When I was in, if, Door- I was in two fighter outfits, and if you were an F-4 yeah. pilot, that's what you were. And then later on, uh, F-16 pilots are the same thing. The only time you change planes is when you change commands. That's correct. Okay.
1: Okay, very good. All right, we're about to close this out. And Dorothy, what's coming up? Can I we say something real quick? Up
7: our, our yeah, go ahead. Too. Excuse
1: me, Dorothy. Go
7: hang ahead, on a go second. Ahead. I got. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> I saw. Reepa Jim, chat go ahead. Here, I just,
6: yeah, I saw Reaper chat yeah. here on the screen, and I wanted to tell you that tomorrow, Jerry and I are meeting at eleven o'clock with our wives, and we're gonna start putting together the second volume of two two twenty twenty. Repartee newsletter, and it should be mailed tomorrow evening. And those of you who are REPA members and whatever, you should be getting it come Monday or Tuesday.
1: Very good. All right. Look forward. It's still no plans for the reunion, right? It's canceled. It's
6: not going to be any plans. We, we, I don't want to get into it, but there's a bit of a sell-throw. So. No, I'll just go ahead with the show. <laughs>
0: Okay.
6: I won't say much. Well, All right,
1: Dorothy, what's coming up? You got the you got the microphone.
7: Okay, on the thirteenth, which is Monday, we're going to have the dance music of the bands in the fifties. Followed by a little humor goes a long way. After that we'll have another music dance music of the bands in the sixties. And then we'll go on to history crew schedule. And coming up, we have retirement over the history of commercial aviation. We'll have air safety and bird strikes. And we'll have, in September, a Hall of Fame award. So we have a few things coming up, and all of it is listed on our website. And, of course, we'll have the updates every week in our e-blast. And anything you need is on the website, so be sure to go there and check it out. And remember, folks, we can always use a donation of $40 to keep us going on the web and uh, in the air and uh, into 2021. So please consider that. All the information is on the website, and announcements are made every single Monday on our show. And thanks again for listening. Back to you, Neil. Mm -hmm.
4: Well, that's our sign-off music playing in the background. We'll see you again next week, same time when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee, the magazine of the retired Eastern Pilot Association. And don't forget, the AL radio show, Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, where we bring you Eastern dances to the music of the big band. And by the way, if you haven't visited our website, it's com, You'll find many great Eastern stories and memories there. So it's time to say goodbye. So, so long, Eastern. And so long to our Easter family. We love good,
0: good 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 Eastern. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Okay,
7: goodbye. Goodbye.
0: Silver wings Shining in the sunlight roaring engines Headed somewhere in flight They're taking you away And leaving me alone Fading out of sight